it, it's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am thrilled to be able to bring you the stylings of Glenn Michael Egner, uh, our librarian at the Alabama Symphony Orchestra. Um, But as I've gotten to know him a little bit, he's uh, quite a jack-of-all-trades, having many different uh, career paths and many different interests and quite a varied and interesting life. And so I thought it'd be really nice to sit down with him and talk with him a little bit about his path in life, things that he thinks. Um, uh, He's a very positive and just wonderful person to be around in the orchestra. And so um, it's, he's a person I always look forward to going to work to see. And so um, I hope that uh, this is enjoyable for you as enjoyable for you as it is for me. So welcome, Glenn. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you. This is a really nice pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, the easiest way to start all these interviews is just to talk about where you were born, where you're, uh, I guess, where you're from, if that's different from where okay. you were born, right? Where you grew up, that kind of thing. And we'll just go from there. All right. Well, I'm from the beautiful town of Daytona Beach, Florida, where they do a lot of surfing yeah. <laughs> and not too much classical music. Okay. Uh, I started out, I was, uh, I guess it was... Uh, when I was in seventh grade, I started playing the clarinet. That was my first instrument. And I remember in those days, you know, you went to this, the music store and you, you bought the instrument by paying monthly, like $14. That wasn't very much in those days. And I started on, I said to my mom, you know, I really like music, but I'm not sure about this instrument. And she says, hey, we just, you know, signed a contract, so you're going to play it. That's it. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> So here I am, I'm learning, blah, 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 and um, doing kind of like fast. And um, I said, you know, I really would like to play another instrument. So I'm like going to the music store every day. What other instruments do you have? And I see this flute. It's a really old, ugly thing. I mean, really horrible. And it costs 15 bucks. Of course, for a kid, $15 in those days, I was like 150 really. To buy was yeah, $15. Yeah, just to buy. Oh, okay. You know? So I said, Mom, give loan me 15 bucks. She says, are you out of your mind? <laughs> what do you want it for? I said, I'm, I want to buy another instrument. But you have a brand new instrument. I said, yeah, but I want to try this one. So finally, she said, no, we can't. We're not, we can't afford it. I said, okay. So then I said to my grand, grandma, you know, my grandmother was from Germany. Like my father's from Germany. And, and she said, yeah, I'll give you the 15. Just don't tell your mother. I said, okay. <laughs> so I went and got the flute. And um, I, it was really ugly little thing italian thing was all you know black because the silver gets you know really tarnished so I, well i started polishing and stuff so i started practicing and i got one of those books i can't remember what it is now but it was like a a band builder book mm-hmm. and it had they have for every instrument yeah you know like and the they method show, books the yeah ones, you know yeah. And they show you know put down the first finger right. and that's c and right. d and i said well it's more or less like the clarinet it's actually even easier i thought so i started playing i was like playing I don't know. It sort of like came to me really fast. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went to the band director and I said, hey, I think I want to switch to flutes. He says, no, we have too many flutes. Stick to the clarinet. I said, oh, come on. You know, so I was, I was with the clarinet. So we were doing the clarinet for a while. And then the next year started and I said, no, I definitely want to switch to flute. 
And the band director says, well, we have this problem. We have the band competition coming up and there's an oboe solo and we don't have anybody who plays oboe. So if you do that solo, then I'll let you play the flute after that. On oboe? Yeah. I mean, no, playing the oboe. So he says, here's the oboe. Learn it. I think so you, you had could. to learn this oboe solo so you could play the flute. That's right. That's so I learned it. I did the oboe, you know, for a while. I thought, hey, this is kind of, I like this one too, except the, the reed business, you know, about when you're a kid making reeds, like, forget yeah. it, you know. So, and they were expensive. They were like $2.50 and they would always break. And I said, well, now I need a new reed. I said, really, go back to the clarinet. We are the flute or something. So anyway, I played the solo. It was like a competition thing, you know, for the band. And I played and I said, oh, that's it. So that's actually how I got into the flute. Okay. It was just sort of like a by the side of the road sort of thing. Okay. Sure. All right. So I got very involved and I said to Molly, I think, you know, I should have maybe a private teacher. So it turned out that the, there was a local band that played in the band shell there. And actually he was a semi-German guy too. And he used to speak to my father in German, I remember. His name was Schuler. And he had he was one of the top clarinet players in the Sousa band. Are you sure he's German with that name? Schuler. Schuler. Are you sure? It doesn't sound very well, I German. I think so. You know, it was like <laughs> he was like Deutscher, you know. No, I mean, I'm just, yeah, I think it was pretty very German. German name. Yeah, very Deutscher. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um he was the head of the band, the band director, but he also taught lessons. And there was a band shell in Daytona where he had his office. And uh he taught, you know, amongst like all the woodwinds. I mean, that was the woodwind teacher there. So I said, oh, I'm going to go study with this guy. So I did. And um, I guess he got sort of like thought I was talented and stuff. And he, you know, started really helping me. And we, he would order these books because in the, the music store there was just sort of like song sheet music and stuff, you know. So he ordered flute books and stuff. And I got them and I was doing it. He said, I think we can, this summer, you can play like an intern sort of in the municipal band. I think I was 16 something like that 15 or 16 yeah i must have been 16 and uh so i played that summer so then the union didn't like this because here i am a kid you know and i'm playing there the second flute because there were just there was one other flutist right a lady right. she was like a high school choir director or something she played flute she was pretty good though but anyway so the of course the union as usual so they did their thing that this couldn't be and that he would have to, I would have to join the union. But there was a problem because you had to be at least 18 or something to join the union. So they had this meeting and uh, Mr. Schuler just sort of um, pushed it and they accepted me into the union. So I joined the union. And I remember my father, who was a carpenter, was so proud. Ah, oh, my son's in the union. <laughs> right. Who in the heck cares about this? But anyway, yeah. I was in the union. And then I started making a little money. And I was already, I said, this is pretty good. But I, I, I went to an all-state competition and I heard the Florida, I heard a Florida orchestra, mm -hmm. which I had never heard before. You know, I mean, it was always band music. I said, hey, this is much better. Sure. You know, than this, than the playing in a so band. So you took the orchestra music better than band. Yeah, I mean, I just heard it. I thought, gosh, but there was no orchestra in Daytona. Mm -hmm. But I did see in the paper that there was always ads for this group. It was called the Daytona Beach Little Orchestra Society. And it turned out that the owner of the newspaper there was a frustrated viola player. He played violin and viola. They were he was from a rather wealthy family, and they sent him to Juilliard and everything. But when he got when he graduated, the father came back and says, "Well, now you're coming because you're going to take over the business soon. The the the, the city um, Daytona Beach City newspaper. What was it called? The News Journal. 
Okay. The news journal. So anyway, I went to see him and I said, well, here I am, you know, I'm flute. I can more or less read this music pretty fast. And, uh, can I play with you guys? Is Hey, this is a string group. There's no winds here, you know? So I said, well, what about if I played one of the violin parts with the flute? You know, he says, well, we've never done that. You know, I don't know. And he said, well, I make a condition. He said, uh, we need an orchestra librarian. So if you're a librarian, I'll let you play with us. Everything was already a condition, you know? Yeah. So I said, well, what is that? <laughs> What's well, an orchestra? I had no idea. He said, well, you know, you put, you make the copies, you paste the music together and all that stuff. We didn't do Biden Boeings or anything like that. Sure, sure. So I said, well, I have no idea how to do it. So he said, no, I'll teach you, but then you come here to the newspaper and you do it. We do, we meet every Wednesday. So you come like on Tuesday, prepare the music and have it all ready for us on Wednesday. And then you can play with us and I'll figure out some music that you can play with us. So he did. And um, I think I was a junior in high school then. And he brought the London Symphony Orchestra to Daytona Beach. It was a summer festival, which he started up there. And it was with the Florida, he was on the board of arts of the state of Florida as well. You know, he was a rather well-known man in the art art stuff and so what happened then he brought this london symphony and so they had like a youth orchestra there you know like a like a summer school sort of thing he said well you're gonna go too and i said i don't think we can afford that you know my father was a was a carpenter my mom sort of worked in a in a in a department store he said no no you you're not gonna pay anything you just do this and do this and you'll help stuff the envelopes, you know, for the flyers, for the stuff and you'll work. In. So you really took like a shine to me. Sure, sure. So whatever. Um, the London Symphony was there and I remember Jeffrey Gilbert was the first flute who was a very famous flutist at the, at the time because he was the professor of all the big people. I mean, really in Europe, in the English speaking right, countries, right? right? So John Pierre was already just just basically starting at that point. So um, he heard me and everything, and he said, uh, "I think you're very talented, but you need to do this kind of studies because the American school is playing a lot of songs and a lot of pieces where you need to be doing exercises and method things and all that." So it just turned out by luck that he was retiring that year from the London Symphony, and he wanted to be like a conductor as well. And I guess you've heard of Stetson University in Deland, Florida. Yeah. Okay. Well, he became, he retired from the Symphony, London Symphony. He went to Stetson as their director and flute professor. So he said, I could see you every, he said to me, I'll How far see. was that from Daytona? Uh, half hour drive. Oh, wow. Wasn't so right there. So he said, uh, so the guy at the newspaper said, his name was Tippin Davidson from the newspaper. He said, uh, I think you should do that. You know, you should go and study with him and he can prepare you to get into a conservatory or something. So I, I went to the class and he said, well, I'll see you every fortnight. I looked at him. I said, uh, every fourth night? You know, I'm a dumb American kid. You know, the, the fortnight is every 15 days. And, okay, and I did not know the that. The Britons, you know. I did they, not know, yeah. They have Brits, weird words for all yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> they have different words for everything, right. you know. I mean, they don't even call it eighth, though. They call it crotch it and all kinds of quavers yeah. and semi-quavers. And he kept saying those things, and I had no idea what he was talking about. But, I mean, he really put me on the 
the way to my future, I think, really. Because sure, that's what it sounds like. Incredible sound and, and all the scales. We did all different way that we did the, the famous Moise way, which you play. You don't just play the scale. You, you're thinking of the tonality of the scale and you go through the whole flute starting on any note and everything. I thought that was really, really difficult, but it was it was very, very good for my technique. So um, the London Symphony came back the next summer. And then I was like, that was my senior year in, in high school. And uh, he said, well, we've got to start applying for schools. So uh, I applied for Juilliard and uh, he was preparing me on the Andre um, Dutieux Sonatine, which is pretty difficult okay. piece. I thought it was too difficult for me, but he said, no, we'll do it. So, okay, we did. So, so anyway, we had it, blah, 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 blah. And I had some relatives at that point in New Jersey. And so my mom said, well, we'll send you there and then you'll stay there a few days and then you'll go and take the audition. So I did. So I walk into to Juilliard and, you know, into the room and there's Julius Baker from the New York yeah, Philharmonic, sure. you know, and there was the teacher that I went, went to, to, which, um, and there was the first oboist, I can't remember her name, it was a woman, uh, Wong or something. Anyway, there was all like the principal wind players there, you know. So I walk in and they say, well, what are you going to play? Where, first I asked them, where are you from? And I said, Daytona Beach, Florida. And they said, oh, I guess uh, you lay on the beach a lot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Classical music they didn't think, you know, was going to go too far. So anyway, so what are you going to play? And I said, I was a dumb kid from Florida. I said, I'm going to play the Henry Dutieux Sonatine, you know. And they looked, everybody started laughing. Right. So I'm like looking at them. I was already a little nervous, you know, I think they're laughing. Boy, they're already laughing at me. This is really <laughs> bad, you know. Well, they were laughing. Yeah, okay, well, go ahead, start, you know. So I played the whole thing. It was pretty long. It was like 15 minutes. Everybody says, you'll probably play five or six minutes. So I played the whole thing. And uh, so Baker looks at me and says, who are you studying with in Florida? And I said, with Jeffrey Gilbert, you know, from the London Symphony. He said, oh, okay. And blah, blah, blah. He said, okay, thanks for playing us and uh, have a good trip back. So I said, well, I guess, you know, they're not interested in me. Well, I got my letter and I got into Juilliard. That's amazing. So that was really exciting for me. Yeah, I'm sure. It was like, wow. So, And I had no really basic training in music except for the band that I you know, I played in in school and everything and the basic teaching, the flute teaching that I was getting from Jeffrey Gilbert. So uh, my friend at the newspaper said, you need to get into some like a little bit of theory in that. So he had some friends that helped me with that. And he like, you know, teaching me basic theory stuff sure. so I wouldn't go in there cold. Right, you know? yeah. So that really helped a lot. And uh, so then I moved to New York. Here I am, 17 years old. And this is a big change, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, anybody, I'm from Lincoln, Nebraska, which is a very, it's not a small town, right? Maybe like 250, 300,000 people. Well, Could be more than that now. Daytona, I guess. Yeah, but the idea, I mean, it has a downtown, but it's not huge, right? Right. So the idea of moving, even going to Chicago uh, in Northwestern was such a change. I remember, you know, you take the subway in from Evanston and then you go underground just before you get downtown, you go underground and then you get out of the train underground. And I remember the first time I walked up the stairs and then I just looked up and now I'm finally in downtown Chicago and it's just buildings everywhere. Building, yeah, like, what is exciting. going on? You know, like this is a complete like, you know, culture shock, really, you know. And you can imagine New York. Yeah, it's the, I've never, actually never been to New York, so I- You haven't? I, yeah, I just assume oh it's Chicago, God. but, but I more. Mean, well, well, I went there for the audition, so I saw it, and I was just like, 
oh, this is incredible. I mean, you know, but in those days, it's not the New York that it was. It was a little bit dangerous. You know, I mean, like the, in the subway, you had to be really careful. And sure, it was a different New York than it is now. I mean, you couldn't, they, everybody said, you know, you're never to go up above 120th Street ever. And especially at night. I mean, no way. And it was kind of hard to find anything that you, because in those days, Juilliard did not have um, a dorm like they have now because they built that big building right next to the, you know, the school. The school is very impressive as it is, you know. But um, so I thought, I've oh, got to figure out where I'm going to live. And I had a scholarship which paid for, it was about 50% of the school. But the school in those days, I think was 2500 a year, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. But that was, but in those days, I'm I mean, talking about 1970. So that was money, but it wasn't anything like today, right, you know, $50,000. Right. I mean, it was said, forget it. You know? Right, right. But um, so anyway, so I go to Juilliard and I, I studied with Arthur Laura. Arthur Laura was the first flute of the NBC Symphony. Uh, he was, uh, Toscanini loved him. He had a very beautiful tone. He wasn't, he didn't have that giant sound that Baker had in the orchestra, but he was a much classier sort of player. Because, you know, Baker, I mean, Baker, in the orchestra, there was no one that could touch him because Baker had this sound that just projected, he had that, the same kind of flute actually that I play, which is the pow. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, hardly anyone plays those old pals. But there was something about that flute that made a difference in the projection. I, I still believe that today because Pal, himself, Pal never really got into making the flute himself. He worked on flutes at Haynes and then he started his own, his own company. Mm -hmm. But he had artisans. In those days, there were a lot of Europeans, you know, that come over after the war and stuff that were really artisans and making instruments and things. And um, he mixed the silver not with copper as they had done before, but he mixed it with platinum and a little bit of nickel. It was very little platinum, but a lot more nickel. And you know, nickel is a little heavier. Sure. But there was something, because the flutes of the old pals in the old days were had like a bluish tint to them instead of that yellowish tint of the silver. Sure. Yeah. I don't know what it was. But anyway, he gave five of those flutes to the major flute players in the United States. I think it was like Chicago, New York. It was the NBC Symphony. I think the Metropolitan Opera. And I don't know who else. It was the other. must have been Boston. Yeah, probably. Yeah. He gave one to each one. Okay. I have number five, which he made. It's 1942, 1943, wow. something like that. I still play the same flute. Wow. It was Arthur Lohr's flute. So, That's um, crazy to have that history. Yeah. I mean, this is, I don't think there's any other flute like it. People try it. Oh, we like gold. Yeah. Yeah. The projection of this flute is not the same because Baker had, well, he had that incredible projection. I mean, nobody had that. And his technique was incredible, but he was not a classy player like Ron Paul that he couldn't like stand in front of an orchestra and do a concerto. He would play it, but I don't know. You know, there's a lot of people that play in orchestras that are really good when they're sitting first chair, but put them up in front of the orchestra and they're a different person. Sure, I think it's know? A, it can be a completely different skill set. It's a different set, switch. Yeah. yeah, I Don't mean, to, like playing in an orchestra, especially in a huge hall, 
like Avery Fisher would be, right? Where it's just right. a huge space to fill. I imagine you're playing things, <laughs> right? You're playing things quite differently. Um, this is actually something I've talked a lot about. Uh, my times at Tanglewood, the the music festival in the Berkshires, that you're with you're with the Boston Symphony um, in close relation with the Boston Symphony because that's their summer home, right? So then they right. have this, you know, music festival that college kids go to and. Uh, we talked a lot about that, about how what you sound like up close may not be what you sound like far away, but in the orchestra, all that matters is what it sounds like far away, right? Right. And so if you sound absolutely atrocious up close, but somehow in the hall where people hear you, you sound angelic, it doesn't really matter, right? But then, yeah, once you get up in front of the orchestra, sometimes those skills don't translate exactly. as easily, exactly. or even that it would be the way you would want to yeah. do things. I mean, I remember... Even the the um, the for the concert master of the New York Philharmonic, I, I'm terrible at remembering name, names, but they came to Venezuela and he played. I always thought he was like incredible. I mean, playing the Strauss pieces and everything, his solos. But he stood up in front of the orchestra and played a concerto. I thought, hmm, I don't know, you know, what happened? <laughs> it's just a, it's a different it's switch. A different, yeah, exactly. Now, our concert master here at the Alabama is a different story. I mean, he sounds great playing the orchestra. When he stands up in front of the orchestra, he's got that the same, that class about him. I don't know what it is yeah. that, you know, je ne sais quoi. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, some people got it, I guess. Yeah. His tone is so, I mean, sound is so beautiful and he's so musical. It's really. But anyway, getting back to Baker. So, um, so Baker, I said to Ben, maybe I would like to study with Baker because he's a big name, but. <sighs> sometimes big names are not what you expect, you know, because sure. he would have some master classes and I would listen to him and students would say, well, how did you do that passage? He said, I don't know. I just do it. Yeah. And he could never explain because I would see like someone would play it, you know, and they would, you know, screw it up or play it in a different way. And he didn't know really. He said, well, don't play it that way. Play it like this. And he would play it and it would sound fabulous and perfect, you know, but he didn't really know how to project where Arthur Laura was a real teacher. Yeah, right. The European style. So anyway, getting back to So and um, I thought Juilliard was great because um, the f- the first year I lucked out and I didn't have to do the rep orchestra. I got into what they called the theater orchestra. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the young uh, conductor, Jimmy Conlon. I have not, no. Okay, well, he he was an up-and-coming young conductor, and he did, like, really outrageous music. I mean, we did Daphnis and Chloe, we did Petrushka, we did everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember Phil Smith was there, the trumpet player. Right. He was in that orchestra, and I remember he was a young kid, and I remember we played the... You were at school at the same time as Phil? Yeah. <laughs> But Phil was, I think Phil was two years older than me, a year or two old before wow. me, I think. Yeah, because I remember he played the Petrushka and it was just so amazing. Like, yeah. How could he be so young? There's so many stories that, you know, like this. these legendary people, these stories start circulating that sound just crazy, you know? Like he would go in and he played everything on B-flat trumpet, but he didn't know how to transpose. And so it ended up being... Some things ended up being in the wrong key oh, really? in his audition. And so the whoever was auditioning him... They, they would say, well, that's not in the right key. Can you play it up a step or whatever it would be? And he'd be like, yeah. I don't know how to do that. That's like a story that circulates, really? right? That he didn't know how to transpose when he first came to, because I think Salvation Army brass banding is a that's lot right. of his. That's right, he was in that. Yeah, and so that. maybe he's he didn't. very religious. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. think they did that as much in, in, in that group because everything's in B flat or E flat in brass bands, uh-huh. right? And so 
but the story is, is that he just sounded so amazing that it was okay. And they were just like, we'll just teach you how to do this kind of thing, you know? So it's just crazy that you were there at that same time yeah, and can kind of confirm that, yes, he did sound that amazing. We, in the org- I was I was playing, I remember in Davis Play, I was playing piccolo and Renee Siebert was playing first flute. And Renee, about two years after that, got into the New York Philharmonic as a second flute. Mm. But she was never really a second flute. She was a first flute. You know, she was really tremendously musical, but she didn't have that sound like uh, Baker. Sure. Big, you know, but she was very musical. But she was second. I think she was there for many years. Yeah. And as she went to a lot of she was from North Carolina and there was a lot of festivals. I was like the European festivals because my first year at Juilliard, I went to the I went to Italy, an Italian festival in the south of Italy. And that was incredible. I loved that. I just because I imagine was, it would be nice. <laughs> yeah, and the music was great too. There was a there was a conductor that conducted a lot of at uh, the op the Metropolitan Opera. His his brother was a great bass, Enzio Flagello, but the conductor was Nicholas Flagello. Okay, they're real Italian. They're from you know Naples. Yeah. Oh, and that was fun. We went down there, and we would play you know everywhere. I mean, mostly in street. The uh, like plazas, you know, you've been to Europe, right? Uh, I was a kid, right? So I didn't really right. see Europe. I feel All like right. I well, saw there's the, a lot, you know, especially the touristy stuff. There's, well, you know, there's a lot of plazas. People in Europe know how to live. You know what I mean? When you're in those little towns, they they sort of like live very close to downtown. They walk around at night in the plazas. You know, it's kind of really nice. It's yeah. very romantic. But anyway, we would play in these plazas sometimes, and they had this thing in Italy of throwing. Do you remember those? Cover candy covered almonds. I think Some, so, yeah. we used to eat them here, like in Christmas time. They're hard as a rock, sort of. Okay, like you know, like uh, what do you call them? Um, teeth breakers or something. Yeah, jawbreakers. Jawbreakers. Yeah, that's yeah. It. Well, anyway, so we're down. We're like crunched in the orchestra's playing. I can't remember what we're playing. And so we get to the end, and people are like, yeah, bravo, bravo, bravo. And they start throwing these candies. Well, can you imagine these candies coming down, hit your violin, <laughs> yeah. hit you on the head, bam. Oh, my God. And the conductor is standing up, you know, and he's waving his hands back and forth. No, don't sit, don't. He's in Italian. No, 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 don't tirare, don't tirare. <laughs> Everybody's like holding their instruments. And these people didn't didn't realize, you know, they, they were, could really screw up the instruments. That's incredible, Yeah. But, but they was, liked it that much. Yeah, they loved it. They That's loved amazing. It. It was, oh, it was beautiful. We played almost every other night there. I mean, I was out on the streets. There were lots of tourists. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a great experience. We How long did it last? Concertos. Do you remember how it many was, weeks? Yeah, it was just three weeks. Oh, okay. Three weeks, and it was all we played every night, like in a different town, because in the, I, that's a very beautiful part of Italy. It's it's the cliffs right onto the Mediterranean Sea. It's right in front of Capri, the famous island there. Sure. And it's yeah, just yeah. the water is crystal and you know like green and rocks it's it's, it's really very Sounds nice amazing. a nice place to go for honeymoon you know <laughs> all right so keep okay. that in mind for kathleen so yeah. i come home and i say well okay now right into italian so um i started some italian classes there because we had to take two years of languages and now german my father says aren't you going to take german i said no no forget that no sauerkraut so we went into italian all right, so I thought the next year I'm going to go back to that festival. Well, darn, the festival doesn't go because they went bankrupt. So oh. uh, so I thought, ah, and I had already planned. It was already like April or May. So well, now what am I going to do for the summer? So that summer I didn't do too much. I went back to Daytona. And, um, well, I, I forgot to tell you that when I was in my senior year, 
uh, my newspaper friend said, maybe you probably need a summer job to make some money because you're going into New York, you know, and you're going to need money. So you can come work for us for the summer while you're here. I said, oh, great, you know. So I did that. And then I went back that summer and worked. And he says, let's start up a summer festival. We call it, he called it the Seaside Festival. And so they picked like a motel that was right on the ocean. The, the hotel would have like a little business because they would serve drinks before we played and every time after we had, you know, um, we finished a piece, they could bring in drinks again, but he would never permit them to bring the drinks or hors d'oeuvres or any food in while we were playing. It was before and as soon as the applause started, they could do it. He would like talk about the music for a while, you know, and it was really, really nice. And we had tremendous, tremendous success with that. Well, he did actually, I mean, because it was a small group. And he got a lot of young people involved in this. And um, the tourists liked it. It was fun. And if they weren't too much into classical music, he would explain, like, you know, what we were going to play. And we tried to play not particularly heavy pieces either, you know, and not maybe if we were going to do a Beethoven trio, maybe we would just do one movement or something. He would talk about it. And we would have a lot of varied pieces in this program. And there was really no intermission. We just did it for an hour. That was it. But the people could have their drinks and they could have hors d'oeuvres and the and the, they could, the, the hotel would uh, or the motel would offer dinner. So they had their way of making money and we would make money too. And we did. So that worked and we did that for six years. I wasn't there all those summers. I Once I was in Venezuela, I came back and, and did some more with him. But that was really a great, and I think that's something they could do here at the symphony too, you know, something like that, have chamber music, have lighten the people up with some cocktails, with some um, wine and stuff. And, and also what he did, which was very interesting, was he was very into art as well. So he would say, let's do a French soiree. So tonight, may for this Sunday, we're going to have only French music. They're going to serve French wines. He's going to have French hors d'oeuvres and he's going to bring in some French French paintings from the local galleries and sometimes posters or just lithographs and things like that, you know, but all with a French theme. Sure, yeah, that makes and sense. And then he would do an Italian theme yeah, and a German sense. thing and and like a, and then he got into, you know, uh, Renaissance and this and that and other, but, we, but it was really very interesting. It yeah. was fun. You wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it got bigger and bigger and then he went into big one, into big hotel and it was really, really lovely. So I, I enjoyed doing that. All right, so I'm back at Juilliard. So now this is my third year and uh, I get into the National Orchestra Association. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. There was a conductor called Leon Barzan. Mm-hmm. He was a violist with the New York Philharmonic for many years. He married one of the Post sisters, so very wealthy. And he started up this orchestra, which was for people that were like university students from all over the New York area. They could be from other areas too, but it was mostly people in New York. Yeah. And if you got into that, they would pay your t- complete tuition at the conservatory or school of music you were at. Plus, they would give you uh, um, a monthly stipends, which was good because it would just about pay your rent. It was like around $500 a month. In those days, you you could pay rent and you still have a little money left right. besides paying all your tuition. Wow. And you so would like a meet, job. Uh, yeah, it was almost like a job. It was, yeah. it was two times a week on Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, I remember we rehearsed at the uh, New York City... Um, ballet studio 
It was right behind 57th Street. American Ballet. Oh, man, that was it. American Ballet. Um, and we did repertoire. And so he would pick pieces and we'd have three concerts a year as well. And those concerts were always at Carnegie Hall. So it was nice. We got experience to play in Carnegie Hall. Wow. And it, was, it was really, it was, I don't, I think after he died, that all ended. But it lasted for a while. I must have, I would say at least 10 to 12 years, I think. Wow. Yeah. So that was interesting. So you so, auditioned for that or you were chosen? Oh yeah. No, that okay. was audition. Okay. Yeah. You had to audition and um, he personally was at every audition. It wasn't like committees or anything. He was there and he he made the judgments who he wanted, who he didn't want. Yeah, okay. All right. Nice. Yeah, and it was very good orchestra. It was really good. Of course, there was nothing like, I have never yet played in any orchestra like the Juilliard Orchestra in 1970. Well, I graduated with my master's in 75. That would have been 75. That orchestra was amazing. I mean, it was because it wasn't, People yet weren't tired of playing the parts, you know what I mean? Repertoire, and they yeah. were in love with music. They had the fire inside of them. And we had tremendous conductors. I mean, we had Pierre Boulez, which was not my favorite conductor, but I must tell you that he, with him, I learned rhythm. Because, man, with the karate chop conducting, you know, <laughs> modern stuff, and he would, like, measure every, every 16th note and stuff, you know? Everything was measured out. All right, those were great experiences. Um, so let's see with Barzan, I, he was going to take, I think it was my senior year. He was going to take the whole, um, national orchestra to the Colorado festival, uh, Aspen. Instead yeah, of them okay. picking their orchestra, it was going to be the national orchestra that year. And they went, but I said to him, you know, I don't really want to go. I mean, I really wanted to go a European style. I thought I was thinking maybe of Austria and. I wanted to apply for the, um, they have a summer orchestra in Salzburg, which is sort of like a rep orchestra. And it's where the conductors get their experience. Right. Okay. Okay. And they pay musicians to go there, but they're mostly college students from all over the world. In those days, it wasn't all over the world. It was a couple from American, mostly European. Right, yeah. Just about all European. I think we were like five or six Americans. It was a couple Australians and a couple Canadians. Um, so he said, oh, I know a lot of people there. You want to go there? I said, yes, I do. And he, he, he also had a shine for me for some reason. And um, they sent me a letter and they hired me. So I said, great. This is great. And so that was the year that they started all those incredible um, flights to Europe at student prices, which doesn't exist anymore. It's too bad because that was really good. It was round trip. You could go from New York to uh, Rome for $199 round trip. Can you imagine? No, I can't. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I used to go a lot on cruises because my mom loved cruises. And this is when cruises just started. Okay. So I thought, gee, you know, it'd be nice to to go to Europe on a ship. I wonder. And it it came out the Italian line had this thing, one hundred ninety nine dollars. They were doing the competition with the airline, and in those days, it was the Michelangelo and the Raffaello, which made the crossing. It was uh, nine days from New York to Napoli, or you could get off in Genoa, which is in the north, which that was wasn't that far from Salzburg. So I took the ship. So I had all that time to practice and everything. 
and I got to Salzburg, and uh, that was an incredible experience. I mean, we had Von Karajan came and gave a master class wow. for the conductors. So by like 20, what, 21 years old, you had had, 21. you'd had like so much amazing training, really just from like people who are at the top I know, of what I, they do. That's pretty incredible. I thank God because uh, I really had a lot of, you know, good luck things. Happen sure. To me. I but was, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's of, incredible. But it was really, it was really, really great. And, um, so I went to Salzburg and I really loved it. And, um, they liked me there and. The conductor there, of the, who was the official conductor of that rap orchestra, was uh, Carl Mellish. He was the, the conductor of the Vienna Symphony, not the Philharmonic. They have a second orchestra, right. which does a lot of opera, ballet, and stuff. And he said, he said, uh, I really like your sound and everything, and I would like to invite you to audition for second flute for that orchestra. And I thought the one place I did not want to live was in Austria. <laughs> <laughs> I always had it. I really always liked South America. I always thought I would end up somehow in South America, Argentina. That's really where I thought I'd probably end up, but or some American. What was your? How was your, like, fascination with South America born? Had you been there at that point, or yes, I had. Okay. Um, I'll just go back from anyway. Salzburg was an incredible experience because uh, we got to see a lot of incredible music and great orchestras were there. I mean, it was, I mean, you'd walk down the street and there you've got Bernstein walking on the street. You've got Von Curry. Well, Von Curry never walked on the street because he had like six bodyguards. You know what I mean? He was a person that they brought him in and brought him out because he was loved and hated, you know, as an ex-Nazi and stuff, you know? Okay. So, but anyway, I mean, the great people were there. It was just incredible. And it's yeah. a very small town. It's, it's very romantic, but the Austrian people are a little bit difficult, I think, and they're not real pro. They weren't in those days pro Americans. So, I don't know, you know. So anyway, so I came back, but I just wanted to go back a little bit. When I'm at Juilliard, um, Arthur Laura used to do a lot of those concerts on tour for the um, for the embassies, the American embassies, you know, bringing down American artists and things, mm-hmm. and so. He had one, and it was in winter to our winter time. You know, it's summer in in South America when it's winter. And he said, "I have this tour to Chile and Argentina, and I don't want to go, so I think you should go." I said, "Okay, what do you <laughs> want me to play?" And he said, "Well, you can play whatever you want. I was going to do this, tour, but you make up your thing and just send it down." So I did. So it was a great. It was a state tour, and I went down there. And believe it or not, that was the year. That was like nineteen seventy three. 72, 72, I think it was December 72. That was the year of Allende, you know, when they were having that, Allende had just become president. Mm-hmm. And Allende was the one that was going to take Chile to communism. Okay. That was the one they murdered. Oh. Allende. I don't know some of this history. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I get to Chile. This is my first. <laughs> I had already been to Venezuela because we used to take cruises and we had been twice to Venezuela. And I really liked it. It was a growing metropolis city, you know, and everything. Yeah. Okay. So I've been into that. I had a very good friend from Uruguay, which I had gone once to Uruguay in Buenos Aires. And so, okay, I am on the tour. So I get, I get to the, to the airport, you know, I arrive and they have this sign, you know, Chilenos, Ch- Chileans, uh, extranjeros, which would be the foreigners and Americans. So they you're not a, a foreigner. They there. had a separate, <laughs> separate one for Americans because they were very anti-American because he was already going with Cuba. You know, this was going to go. I thought, oh boy, what did I get into? You know, here. But I was still young, so, so it was cool. And I had already started a little bit in Spanish, so I could like get by ordering things, 
that was about it. I limit in Spanish. So uh, I did the concert and I met a lot of young people and they said, well, you got to come to know this city on the coast. It was about an hour and a half. Beautiful. You know, Chile is a very beautiful country. It's very mountainous. Yeah. Um, with the Andes and that. Mm -hmm. And they have trains and everything. You know, I didn't the, know that. The Germans were there too. You know, there's a whole town where all they speak is German, actually. I did not know South, that. Yeah, a lot of ex-Nazis and not ex- They say not ex-Nazis, but I think ex-Nazis, whatever. <laughs> anyway, it's they had a lot of European <laughs> culture there. Sure. Okay. Sure. So anyway, I got on the train. All these, you know, They weren't used to seeing American, young Americans. They would ask, what do you think about the politics? And to tell you the truth, I did. I was never following politics when I was in school. I didn't watch TV. I mean, you know, when you're at school, you're practicing and your your life is like doing other things than watching TV. Well, that's one thing I was going to ask you about, actually, is it, it seems very clear that from a young age, you were quite a self-starter it seems like you were very you you were very discerning and you kind of knew what you wanted right yeah I like think so yeah yeah especially being discerning hearing some of these um greats like julie talking about julius baker doing master classes and i feel some people would listen to it and and hear that thing and just by the position that he has think this is amazing right but for you you were trying to seemingly be more discerning about the information you were taking in and what that meant to you and do you feel like that that was part of your added to the part of your success that you seem to have and and the, the opportunities you were yeah, was think, that drive and that discernment you had at, at a young age i think definitely i've always had that drive in me you know my mom my mom I, well when i was young and i'd be practicing she would because she worked uh you know when you work at, at at those kind of department stores sometimes you have a shift where you work you know like one o'clock to nine o'clock at night and she would call me in the afternoon soon as I school got, are you practicing? And I said, yes, mother, I'm practicing. I was, I was, I was. But I, I always thought I'd like practice an hour. She said, no, I think you need to practice a little more. She knew nothing about music. And one thing she always said, I can hear you breathe. So I got this thing in my mind that I just, when I, that when I took my breath, it could never make any noise. It was like really quiet breathing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I teach my students that. I said, gee, you know, you played this beautiful phrase and very pianissimo on stage and it was gorgeous. And then you took this breath, you know, <gasps> I mean, really? Kind of take, <laughs> takes you out of the moment. A I don't want to. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to know that you have to breathe. That's, and I think I got that from my mom because she was always honest. I don't want to hear you breathe. Do something that you don't breathe. And I would ask, you know, as I would ask my teacher, well, how can I do this and not make it as well? And I was, you know, don't breathe. Ha, <gasps> breathe. Ho. Sure. Because you get, it like pulls more air into mm -hmm. it. So like in Spanish, we say, we think, I tell my kids, think of like ho of Jose, ho, that kind of a ho and breathe in. Because a lot of kids do that H-A, ha. It's like very shallow. You can hear the difference. Yeah. yeah and it makes a lot shallow, of noise yeah. and you don't get as much air. Yeah. It's kind of all stuck in the chest. It sounds yeah, like. Yeah. Yeah. And even singers, sometimes you get them with a, the, you know. <laughs> but anyway, and you have you ever noticed that when you go to record something in a studio, that that's where you really get into the, I've really gotten off track here. This is like this. This is wonderful. This is like, sounds like a Latin interview. <laughs> <laughs> Latino, we go here, we go there, yeah. then we come back. No. You know? This is great. But um, what was I saying? Uh, uh, studios. Oh, yeah, the studios. Yeah, I remember that once it was like a popular song and I went in there and I thought, Man, because you got the microphone right here and the acoustics are terrible, you know. I mean so dry can Yeah, it's so yeah. dry. Yeah, and the reverb. I've yeah. never this my sound sounds terrible. I mean, how am I gonna 
But the, your breathing, that's when you really have to be careful with your breathing because you have to like breathe away from the mic because it sounds like you have asthma, you know? Sure, sure. I'm sure now they've improved that a lot, but in the old days, I remember when I made my first, I have a record, which I made with my harpist at the orchestra in Venezuela. And I thought about that all the time, about the breathing, you know, just moving my head back and forth. And that's kind of annoying because then you're thinking about the music, but it would be nice to, to not have to record something in a studio because I, I think that's a whole technique you have to learn. Right, yeah. Yeah, the more I think a lot of times, it, too, doing it, if you have the opportunity, doing it in a space, say like a church or something, oh, that can be, yeah, yeah, and you get a mic up close, you get a mic far away, kind of a nice balance between the right. two, um, I think just makes a more natural sounding product because you're getting the reverb of the room. The room sort of becomes an instrument of its right. own in that. Yeah, I, compl I completely agree, yeah. So I heard the orchestra in uh, Santiago, Chile, and I didn't think it was too good, you know. The people were great, but the orchestra, they were, their level at that point was really very bad. So then I went and played in Argentina, and their orchestra was good, very good. You know, well, they have the famous uh, opera theater there. Okay. And um, they do a lot of opera and the orchestra. It was a much better quality than what I expected to hear in South America. They were really, very good. Uh, I don't know if you, well, you haven't been to Buenos Aires. Buenos Aires is called the Paris of, of South America. Oh, I didn't know it's that. It's changed a lot. But I mean, it has, because remember that Argentina is a very big country. Mm-hmm. And they had beef. I mean, they were very famous for their beef. I mean, all that was imported to the States and import, uh, exported, I meant to say, exported to Europe. So that was a big economy after the war. Sure. I mean, this was a big upcoming. Unfortunately, Latin politics always seems to ruin countries. <laughs> That's exactly what happened there. And yeah. They went down, they went up, they go down, they go up. But I mean, it was built. If you go there and you think of Paris, if you walked on the streets in Paris, you're very, it's very comparable to Buenos Aires. That same sort of structure, you okay. know. It's a no, very, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's a very beautiful city. It has a lot of culture. It's incredible. I just fell in love with that city. And uh, so the next stop was Brazil. We went to um, Rio de Janeiro. That was fun. Lots of partying. <laughs> <laughs> Great to visit. It's a gorgeous, I mean, gorgeous. Geographically, it's probably one of the most beautiful cities in the whole world, you know. But music-wise, forget it, you know. Okay. Not too much. It's a little better now, but not, not too much. All right. So I go back, back to school. And um, I forgot, I'm leaving out a summer that when I go to study with Paul in France. And that was in Nice, in the south of France. So in those days... So you just did a ton of traveling, too, at, at a very young age. Like, I've done some traveling... But when I was that age, hardly like, any. Not because I was rich or anything. I mean, in those days. But you days, just had those opportunities to do so. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I remember, Ryan, the first time I went to Italy for that festival, I had $400 in my pocket and I was there for, I mean, because after, after the festival was over, the three-week festival, I went traveling around Europe. And I don't know, but I still had money. It was $400. <laughs> wow. I don't know how you did, but in those days, you know, you could stay at really, really rinky-dinky, like on pensiones, just little little hotels and maybe have six rooms, you know? Mm -hmm. Very, very simple. You know, there's no bathroom, but the bathroom's down the hall and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, you paid maybe $8, $7. Cause right, for that. In those days, you know, it was like 2,000 lira to the dollar and it was... The, the francs were four, four, five, six francs to the dollar. So it went a long ways. Yeah. $400 was a lot of money. Believe it or not, now $400, you get off the plane, that would be it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Take the <laughs> right. taxi to the hotel, you have dinner, and that's. $400. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, but anyway, and and also I had a lot of assistance because of these festivals. Sometimes you know you'd get your airfare included, and of course the state tours where everything was paid. Exactly, plus, yeah, that's plus the kind I got of the means. Little, you know, I got a little money on the you side just too. We're fortunate enough to receive these opportunities yeah. that got you to see. Uh, so you probably had an interesting perspective compared to maybe other people that you were in school with who maybe didn't do so much traveling because you just saw you know travel is. But well, well, Juilliard, a lot of people were were moving. You know, in those days, Juilliard was like the big deal, and and I mean, there were kids going everywhere, playing everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was a difference. I think it's a different school now than those days. Because in those days, in the seventies, they they took in so many people that left. If you had three flute people graduating, three people they took in. Mm-hmm. If you had five, well, you never had five. It was like maybe two, three trumpets, four trumpets a year that graduated. Then they that was that's how many people they would take in for that year. So they always kept it like that. Yeah. But now, I, whoever can pay, I suppose they could. Pay. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you sure. You could pay fifty thousand, you know, plus right. living. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I don't know that, but I think that that's the case. All right, so we're going back. Let's see. I think you had just gotten done in Salzburg, right? Yeah, Salzburg, that was that summer. Then the next summer was the when I went with Rumpal. Okay. And that was, I think, the greatest experience of my life as far as music went because of the fact he is, he was, well, besides him being probably the greatest flutist that ever existed, he was a wonderful man and an incredible teacher. Incredible. And, you know, it was very different than the American style because the American style is I had a teacher, I had my hour class, and that's it. In Europe, and especially like with the French style, is that everybody's together. His class of flute students, they're all there. Okay. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, we were like 12 or 13 students. And I think we're, we're mostly American. And there were a couple Germans and I think some French. I don't think there were any Italians. How did you get? How did you get the opportunity? Was it sort of like a thing you sent a recording in for, or was it word of mouth? How did you? Oh, uh, that was in those days. It was all by recommendations. Okay. That you went to those. Yeah. But okay. You had to pay to be there. Though. Sure, you sure. You had to pay expenses. Yeah, I had okay. saved up for that, and um, it wasn't that expensive though. And I can't remember at this point, but I don't even can't remember the year if that was seventy four. It must have been seventy four. But anyway. That was the first time I had that kind of experience. We had master classes once in a while in Juilliard, but this was like every day. And we were for hours because this was every morning because Ron Paul didn't work in the afternoon because after we'd have so many wines, we couldn't walk anyway. <laughs> so we would go, we would go early in the morning, we'd all be warming up and he'd show up. And at that point he was very, very heavy. I mean, he was like, I maybe 200 pounds about, he wasn't, he was, tall but he was also very big but a belly you know because he loved to eat sure. he was a bon vivant i mean his thing in life was you know love food and vacations <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's cameras not, he loved cameras it's not he a said, bad way to go yeah, yeah. but uh, the experience was incredible because it was we started with technique things we would all do it and every piece we played you know he would play with us and each person would play the same passage and we'd work on, and we would tell each other what we thought about each other, how we played that passage, and how we could fix it. It was really a learning experience, you know? Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the first day, you want to show off, and I'm the best, and you're the best, because that's real American, that competition thing, you know? Yeah. But there, it was different. But it was, it was sort of like we were almost like buddies, you know? I, mean, I don't know. It was brotherly, sort of, like fraternal sort of thing. 
And it was mostly guys. I think there were like two girls at that point. Now that the girls seem to have taken over the flutes. <laughs> you don't see guys, but say, look at our orchestra. We're all girls here. Yeah. <laughs> in my orchestra in Venezuela, we were all boys for years and years. All men. Yeah. All right. So I had that experience and I love Rumpa. I mean, we would go out after, after every uh, class, it would be lunchtime. And you know, lunchtime in Europe's a big deal. That's like the dinner in the States. Okay. So like the big That's feast. their big deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dinner is usually a little less, you know? So we'd go out and they start with the wine and they're used to drinking that wine. And we're, you know, dumb American kids. We drink one glass of wine. We're out. You know? Yeah. yeah. But this was like, they go through bottles, you know? Mm -hmm. And he taught us, you know, about wine and about don't just bite into this food. Try, look at, look how it looks. The aromas. I mean, he was like just incredible. Wow. Man. He came to Venezuela many times and played. Yeah, and we would always go out and stuff. And I was his page turner there in Venezuela every time he came, which was scary too because he had this. Have you ever heard of John Ritter, the pianist? It was his. I don't know. Well, he's a really, really good pianist. Okay. But they have played so many years together that when they go on tour, let's say they're going to Venezuela or they're going to Japan, they don't practice or anything. They don't warm up. They just walk out on stage and play it. And, you know, they do a lot of things with variations that have repeats and stuff and jumps here. And so I said, because I'm turning the page and I said, well, John, um, are we going to repeat? Said, I don't know yet. You know, he looks at me. If he looks at me like this, I know we're going to repeat. And if he's like this, let's go on. They did they at the concert. <laughs> and That's Rump even a little fast and loose for my taste. And I kind of play it fairly easy. Yeah. Well, Ron Paul was one when he would say, well, we would talk about ornamentation with Baroque music and stuff because he was not a specialist in Baroque music. Mm -hmm. He played it beautifully. But he, he never really studied all, you know, the, this is this way and this one has to turn, has to be this way and blah, blah, blah. But I said, well, how do you do this? Is, I don't know, because every time I do it different. That was his style. Sure. It was loved. I mean, nobody, a lot of the Germans didn't like that because they liked the Baroque, you know, exactly. This has to be exactly like this and like that. But he was the, the French, the more Latin style that whatever comes out. Sure, sure. I think that's what make our, makes our conductor, Carlos, so great too because he has that freedom of not have. I could maybe change this a little bit here and change that there, you know, and I think that makes all yeah, the difference. Yeah, hope that we're good enough to catch it, I suppose, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, so that's schooling. So I'm in my last year. Uh, no, I've already graduated, undergraduate. That's mm. the year I went to France. Okay. So I stayed. Ron Paul said, why don't you stay longer, you know? And blah, blah. I said, well, I see, you know, about the money. He said, oh, we worked so on. So I stayed. I was there almost a year. Then I came. It was about eight months. Then I came back to Juilliard. And, you know, in those days when you went to Juilliard, if you went directly from your bachelor's you could do your master's in one year and so that was I thought I just mom said you know my mom said let's just go for that you know I mean you're in and I was in that orchestra too the national orchestra yeah and Barca so it had been paid for yeah, yeah. so that's paid so let's do it so yeah okay so I did it and uh so I'm in I think it's like right before Christmas that I see an um an advertisement there that the Venezuelan Symphony Orchestra is looking for a flute, principal flute. They were looking for a principal flute and strings. I think it was mostly violins and violas. So I said, yeah, I'm going to go for that. So I went and I, I auditioned for the conductor. And um, 
so he he kept having me playing and playing and stuff and more stuff and he said um how much experience do you have so i told him you know i said here's my resume blah blah blah. i said okay he said okay i'll get back to you so i didn't think much of it right Mm -hmm. so come january about the end of january i get this is before emails cell phones all that right i get a letter and it has a ticket in it it has a ticket for the caracas of my new york caracas and it says, please go to the embassy. We've decided to hire you and please go to the embassy and so that you can get a visa. <laughs> when were you supposed to come go? Come as soon as you, it was an open ticket. Oh, those, okay. In those times, you know, you, you could just buy a ticket. You didn't have to put dates. You put the dates in whenever you want. You just called them up, you know. Okay. It wasn't like today. There's no change. You could change every, you could change airlines. You know what I mean? So um, I said, uh, I called him up to Venezuela and I said, uh, I thought that you told me this was for September, you know, the next year. And he said, yeah, but we need you now because we're going to go on tour and I need a first flute, really. And I said, I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm not giving up my, you know, it's already January. Right, I'm going to graduate through, in May right, yeah. with my master's. I'm not giving that up to go now. And he says, well, when could you come? And I said, I don't know. Let me talk to the school and see what they say. You know? <laughs> And I was really excited because this is going to be my first job. Right. Now, mind you, at that point, the the, the salary was going to be $10,000, which was no great shakes in New York. But for South America, that was like, I'd say like 50000 at that point in comparison to here. All right. So, but I was thinking 10000 I said to my office, you're kidding, 10000 That's nothing. That's, yeah, but I said, but that's different there, you know, because... Blah, blah, blah. Guys, I had been to South America and I saw how a dollar, how far it went, you know? All right. So anyway, I go to talk to the dean. He was a really nice guy. I think he was a trombone player. I can't remember his name right now. So I said, you know, this is a pretty good opportunity for me because you know how hard it is to get a job in flute. And this is right into first flute, which is really nice. And um, what can I do? He wants me to come now. So he said, this is an opportunity you can't pass up, but we want you to graduate. So let me talk to your teacher and stuff and see if we can give you an early graduation. So they did. They gave me, it was about the 15th of April. So I did the classes up to like the 10th of April and I left on the 15th of April. And you moved to Venezuela. And they said, we'll send you, you know, we'll send you your degree. And they did. Nice. So that all worked out. They gave me an early jury and everything. So I went to, so I get to Venezuela. So uh, they had they picked me up and they put me up at this hotel, sort of like live-in hotel. And they said, we'll pay this for like a month or so. And then you got to find an apartment, all that stuff. And, but mind you that my Spanish was still like very little, you know. <laughs> and here I'm thrown in. And in those days in Caracas, not many people spoke English, only in the big hotels. That was it. So I was like thrown into this. And um, I just learned fast. So yeah, it's kind of crazy too. Obviously, that would be even more of a culture shock from the Daytona to New York. Yeah. Now you're going New York yeah, the, to South America. But right? I had already traveled, you know, and been yeah, in countries so, where yeah. I speak the language. But you know, in Europe, you could get by, uh, by in English pretty well anyway. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this was a little different. So I go to the Orcs for my first rehearsal, and I remember it was at nine o'clock in the morning. And I get there like eight o'clock because I'm always early anyway for everything. And it's like nobody. Everything's dark. And I thought, boy, maybe I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) (laughs) 
So finally, there was another American in the orchestra, and he was a clarinetist. And he comes in, Mark, and Mark says, oh, no, you're super early. They don't even open the doors till like 8.30. The director will probably arrive here like about 9.30, and we'll probably start at 10. <laughs> he said, but don't worry, because we're supposed to, we're only, we only work till 1, but after that, we if the we start late late we 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 start we stop at the same time anyway or we always get out early which was the case anyway so we just worked Monday through Thursday and we had a concert on Thursday and, and so you had cool. the weekends yeah we had the weekends wow and in those days that was the seventies when all the oil companies were there and there were lots of Americans Americans they were Dutch and French and the Americans that were there were mostly Texas type people you know that were not interested in learning the language or anything they were just sort of there making money and they were going to because they made a lot of money yeah people work for oil because you know they get their salary but they also get living so they can maintain a house in the states and, and their house okay, there yeah, okay. and their kids get free schooling in American schools and so it's a big deal for them yeah so then the companies what they did there was have these parties Every weekend, it was either Shell, which is the Dutch, it was Texaco, was American, Exxon, which I think Exxon had some French um, ownership at that point. I'm not quite sure. It was okay. something like that. But anyway, whatever that, it, it was their, their week to give the party, they would give the parties. And these were big time parties. I mean, food, live music, all the liquor, everything. And so they would invite like all the, the community that worked. And, the, and some of us in the musicians, we were like five Americans. We got into that. So we had parties every week. It's like, this is nice. This is pretty good life, it sounds like. too bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds very nice. It isn't too bad. And that was right when they were starting up. Abreu was starting the El Sistema, which in those days mm -hmm. was called the Venezuelan Youth Orchestra. Yeah, that yeah. was their name. He went through like 20 names. Every year he changed the name. And... Um, he was a real kind of crazy, neurotic person, but his drive was to make this youth orchestra and, and everything. So um, the symphony there had already had like their own like sort of school, but it was like, you know, they call it medio made. It, was, it wasn't that, they weren't that really interested in it, but they did it, you know what I mean? There were music schools and stuff, but this this youth orchestra, he he wanted them, he would have this like Suzuki thing. They wanted to sit down. They were just learning their instrument. They had them already playing music. You know what I mean? Like sit down hmm. in the orchestra. It was like real fast. Yeah. I wow. thought it was crazy in the beginning. So he got me and he said, I'll hire you. And he like was paying these exorbitant amount of money for people to teach us. Okay, I'll do it. You know, great. I had all this time. Yeah, seriously. So yeah. I started. So I started with the kids, and they, you know, these are kids. I said, How long have you been playing flute? And I remember this kid told me, like, 10 years. And he played something to me, and I thought it was like the first year of flute. You know what I mean? I mean, all the fingerings were wrong. I mean, everything. How does that happen? I mean, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying he played F sharp with the middle finger instead of with the right finger. I mean, the B flats, they were doing like this instead of like with the key. And, I thought, what are you doing 10 years? What what music? He said, well, I play out of this book. So it was the Moise, it was a big book, Tafnel Gobert, to which a lot of the, the French used for years, but for little kids, sort of, like to get started, you know? They, they do it for 10 years, you know, the same book, but no repertoire or anything. Okay. So I don't know, this is That's... like this Italian crazy system. So I said, no, 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 no. Sounds no, like no. it wasn't working that well. That doesn't work that <laughs> <laughs> so then you know i got all my books and stuff and we photocopied everything and got the kids sort of like in more or less some 
more regimented sort of like let's do music but let's do exercise let's do scales but let's not just do scales and exercises because that's boring right i mean we gotta do other things too and, sure. and build up your your musicality yeah so i started with the system so i was with them for years and years and years and then that got bigger and bigger and bigger they just kept the government kept pouring money into because it, it was a good propaganda thing you know get kids off the street get them playing instruments and these kids were really lucky because they gave them everything i mean they got their teacher they got music classes they gave them their instrument and besides that they gave them a scholarship wow and this is years went on years went on who wouldn't do that yeah yeah as years and years went on they were actually the kids were making more than we were making in this in this in the orchestra of course, later on, that got sort of corrected, you know, with the government. Because there, everything was funded by the government. We didn't have to, you know, worry about selling tickets. Tickets were always very cheap anyway. A dollar, three dollars, ten dollars. Yeah, okay. You know, for a major deal. That Obviously was. very different from here. Oh, yeah, very different. Like the European style. Sort sure. of like Germany, all the orchestras. I, I think most of Europe, maybe not so much Spain and Italy, but most of them, it's all funded by the government. Right, So right. they're not worrying about, right. you know, but they have their automatic audiences. Of course, more in Germany than that. So anyway, this orchestra, I was in there about, uh, I started in 75. And we did a few South American uh, trips. We went to Cuba and I thought, well, I have an American passport. I don't think I can go to Cuba. So they said, well, why not? You know, you're not going through the United States. You're coming with us on the plane. So we went. And it was it was really very interesting you know, wow. for us. Yeah, I was uh, the Americans. We were a little scared in the beginning. We thought, you know, they were going to beat us up, but, but nothing like that happened. You know, it was, it was cool. But then we went on a big tour in '81. We went to um, six weeks to Europe, and that was wild. That was Venezuela was already booming at the oil. They all had made this incredible, you know price with OPEC, I think it was like 50 or $60 a barrel and they were producing 10, 12 million barrels a day. So the country, the money was overflowing. Wow, okay. We were getting a lot of my immigration from all over the world. And I mean, the, he was getting tea, big time teachers to come down and work with the youth orchestra. And that's when they renamed it the Simon Bolivar. Yeah, I know. I, that's kind of how I learned about it, right, I think, it under Simon that Bolivar. name. First it was the Venezuelan Youth yeah. Orchestra, then it was Simon Bolivar, and then it was in the last 10 years, when, 15, 12 years, when he went into El Sistema. Right. I never really liked that name. It sounds communist to me. Uh, El Sistema. You know. Yeah, we talked about this before, seeing yeah. some videos of uh, Dudamel. Dudamel, yeah. yeah I conducting. I was a little kid, you know. Yeah, so. no, I mean, I remember watching videos on YouTube of that group playing and just thinking... This is a youth orchestra. This is insane. They sound so amazing, you know. Yeah, but they were, they were, but they rehearsed like crazy. Yeah, and these kids, it was just they had been playing all their since they were little kids. They were already they already knew the orchestra repertoire. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I have students. It's your whole life. Yeah, you would. They come in with the Shostakovich tenth. I don't think in our in our I orchestra we had ever played the Shostakovich tenth. And I looked at the part, you know, I'm going like, oh my god, <laughs> just a minute. <laughs> Yeah, can I even do this? Do you have some fake figurines for this part? He says, <laughs> he's going, because Abreu always did these crazy tempo. Everything was like triple fast, you know? Said, How in the heck are they ever going to play that that fast? <laughs> but uh, they did it. I mean, and they threw it at threw it at them. Now, you know, the youth orchestra all sometimes wasn't as youthy as they were made up yeah. to be. You know what sure, I mean? Sure, there were sure. already a lot of older ones that looked a little younger, you know? Yeah. But... 
I must admit it was a, it was a good thing. You know, it was a very positive thing. The problem with all that is that they didn't build audiences, you know, because we had like, there's a couple orchestras in Caracas and each orchestra sort of had their audience. And we almost always filled up unless it was very certain serious programs, maybe less, you know, but I mean, big orchestra programs and big, they like big soloists there. You have a big time piano soloist, uh, a violinist, you fill the hall. Flutes, trumpets, trombones, not so much. You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, but the youth orchestra, it became a little bit incestuous in 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 looking at it because they would they would make the kids, the younger kids, sit in their own concerts to fill them up. Hmm. Of course, they're getting all of their parents and stuff, you know. But you can't go to every concert, you know. And this is every weekend they've got concerts going on, so it's sort of like he had this thing that we have to fill the hall. So he would make the kids pull them out of class and make them sit in the audience. So it just to it fill looked up. like it was. Yeah. Yeah. Sort Interesting. Of a little bit like the way the government works there. You know what I mean? That's sort of like, let's make it look like it's full, you know? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, they did have a lot of positive things and Gustavo came out of that and they, they played these very, very vibrant South American pieces. I remember when we went on our first tour in 81 and we had a German conductor and he was very, very good. His name was George Schmurry. He, after he left us, he went to the Munich Orchestra. But we went on this tour. We played the Brahms First Symphony 36 times. Let me tell you, that's very difficult to do. It's a lot of times. My assistant and I had it down every, you know, movement exactly how we would take bets on how many minutes it was going to be today. Huh. We had to think about other things. It's very hard on a tour to play the same symphony 36 times. You know yes, what I mean? Yes, I can imagine. It's hard to like get, you're in, I love Brahms. I love it. And I love the first symphony, but man, I got to where I thought if I ever play this again, you know, it's just going to kill myself. <laughs> 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 and that, that's an interesting thing on tour when you go on these tours and you repeat. And I said to him, I said, but Maestro Schmurri, wouldn't it be good if we did some more South American music, you know, because that's who we are really, this orchestra, because we had a lot of Latins in the orchestra. And um, at that point, they didn't like the idea of we we're just doing Brahms because it was a political thing too, you know, and we're going as the orchestra of, Venezuela and we should be doing some Venezuelan music. Although most Venezuelan classical music is not that great. Okay. There are a few numbers. I mean, there's a few pieces that are really good that that's the ones that Dudamel always do. I'm surprised we haven't done that. I said, Carlos, we should do some Latin music here because some of them are pretty good and they're audience pleasers. You know, they're right, right. loud and one starts with a big trumpet solo, you know. It's oh, he, good. He always does that one. Yeah. Yeah. But um, let's see, I'm getting a little bit off track here. So I was talking about El Sistema. Oh, no, our tour to Europe. So I, I tell you, it was amazing the halls we played in Germany. The acoustics, some of those halls are just unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, and we'd fill up the theaters all the time because the Germans just love music, you know, and they were so interested to see a South American orchestra because they figured no South American orchestra is probably going to play this right. very well. Yeah. And I think they were a little bit... You know, hey, this is pretty good. We've got a German conductor and, you know, they're doing a pretty decent. It wasn't great at that point yet. This orchestra improved over the years. You know, sure. as the system's coming up and we got better musicians all the time. 
for a while, like we'd have viola auditions and nobody would come. There wasn't there were none. I mean, you know, the ones that were in the country were playing in our orchestra were no more. You know? Yeah, okay. And it, it was for a while in the boom thing, it was easy to bring people down. But most Americans that came came for a year, sometimes two years, and then they wanted to go home. Okay. But is there anything you want to ask me about? Well, I don't know. I'm South just American. And- I mean, it sounds like it was such an incredible time in your life with the great music and all of the teaching and the lifestyle. Why are you here? Okay, now that. <laughs> That's a sad story. <laughs> I don't know. I just that's a sad story because it really was. I mean, I owe everything to Venezuela. I, I started my career. Here, well, I started my learning career here, mm-hmm. and I built into the musician. I think I became in in South America, right? And the teacher. Um, Venezuela was a great country. I mean, it was really booming. It was artistic. Great designers came out of there. What happened? Chavez won in 98. You know, there's always, in South America, here we have corruption, right? Yes. Lots of corruption. Every, like, yeah. like every country almost. Yeah. But in South America, you have more corruption. <laughs> and there's a lot of bureaucracy. Let's say you want to get a passport. And it's not, here, what do you do? You go to the post office, they take your picture, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You send it away, you get your passport, that's it. Right. Well, there, it's a process. Everything's a process. Just getting your ID card, which everyone must have, is a process. There are lines. You got to go through this. They spell your name wrong. You, this, uh, you didn't bring the right paper for this. You didn't bring the right. You have to have stamp for this. You have to have this notarized. I mean, it's, but all of these things can be gone around by pain. So when the world goes around by pain, then you have all this corruption. Mm-hmm. Then what happens also in the big boom area, you got a lot of very poor people coming from Colombia from the Andean countries, Ecuador and Peru, which now have come up, but in those days were very, very poor. We never got Mexicans and things. That's a very far distance. Yeah. You know, people say you're South American Mexicans. Uh, that's yeah, like, there's a couple of miles like in between there. like New York to London, you know, right, right, a little yeah. further actually. Yeah, we're closer to New York than we are to, 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 to Mexico. All right, so we got a lot of poor people. And what were they doing? They were, everybody had a maid. Who didn't have a maid? I had a maid. Okay. You know, I mean, our salaries were pretty good. I mean, for living there. And then we all taught and we played lots of gigs. I mean, I could just go to the Ministry of Culture and say, gee, I'd like to do about 10 recitals this year. No problem. Where do you want to do them? What cities? You know, and you'd get paid. Let's say if you got $1,000 for each recital, plus you got your spend money to go there. They call viaticos, per diems, things like that, right, the right. airfares yeah, yeah. and whatever. So you could make a lot of extra money too, just by playing. And there were lots of gigs. I mean, big time concerts, weddings, whatever. It was all the time. You were busy, plus you're teaching. So you were doing well and everything was working. Oh, we're doing these world tours. And we went on tour. We were really lucky because... Besides getting our hotels and most of the food would, you know, when you go on government tours and things, a lot of times the sponsoring government will invite the orchestra out to dinners and lunches and that. So we would get a per diem, which sometimes would be 150 euros a day that we didn't even need to spend, basically. So a lot of people would come home with money. You'd go on a tour. Like we went to Russia. We were there for uh, six weeks, three weeks in Russia, and then we did three weeks. And so it was a six-week tour. Yeah, okay. Okay, and so a lot of people have money from that. Now, what happened in Venezuela? You brought in all these poor people. They're working, doing the things that now the Venezuelans didn't want to do. 
plumbers, electricians, you know, the usual, just like in the European things. Okay, so you're bringing them in. Now, where are they going to live? Caracas became an expensive city to live in. So just to get an apartment, you had to make a certain amount of salary, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you've got the people living, there are hills all over Caracas. Caracas is very interesting geographically. This is a giant mountain. It's all green. It's very beautiful. And then there are big hills. It's like mini mountains. And those people start building up on the hills. Squatters homes, sort of. Now, mind you, in these squatter homes, they probably have a TV bigger than yours. You know, all the latest stuff equipment but they don't have a car they don't pay taxes they probably don't pay the electricity because they probably have a way to connect into the light posts you know and things like that so you've got a president who's going towards communism where he's seeing oh we have rich people he's right he he takes over the government we never thought he would win i should go back a little bit we had a corrupt government two presidents before he got in. And he was a commander, I guess that would be so like a colonel or something in the army. And he tried to throw the government. So we had a coup. Now in this coup, Caracas, mind you, is a city, as I just told you, surrounded by mountains. At that point, I had a small apartment in a very high building. It was 40 stories. And I was on floor 36 and 30 because they were like double floored apartments 35 and 36 so we see the planes coming in and shooting over the city i mean actually shooting bam and these right a revolution i mean you've got you've got the tanks going down the streets and everybody's trying to get home this is like about midday now the theater where i lived was like a complex it's like right across the street from the theater so i didn't even my car i just walked home so i'm gonna get the hell home yeah <laughs> and they're shooting we're like down you know under the beds and the shooting's gone the windows are breaking in buildings i mean this is they're trying to take over the presidential palaces which is right downtown and they're bombing it and everything i mean this was craziness yes that sounds insane. Craziness. But the military was not going with this guy, the majority of the military. So they, by about midnight, they took it under control and they got him in, on the TV and everything. He had already done a lot of damage. I mean, they went into the state-owned television and just mowed the people down. I mean, there was no like, go home, get out, we're taking this over. They just killed them. Innocent people. I mean, that was really awful. Wow, And I don't know how he ever got elected because I always said to people that I had friends that we used to fight about this and argue about is how can you let a person take over, I mean, a country and you're going to vote for him now after they killed all those people. I mean, it was all right. So he goes to jail, right? They, they get him and he, he goes in jail, right? So we have elections for the next president. So this was an election which it was very rocky because usually it went one party to the other and they had no re-election events. Well, I thought it was really great. It was a five-year term and no re-election. Okay. Okay. So you get a change of president. So it turns out that this president happened to be always a buddy of Chavez's father, who was a school teacher, but he was in politics, but more of a school teacher's type. They were friends, so they finally decided to pardon him. Wow. So when they pardon him, he comes out as a hero. 
because there are people that still believe that he's going to put things the way it should be because we don't want to have just medium, I mean, middle class, rich and poor. We want to have everybody just about the same, you know. So the, if you're poor, you don't think about that. I mean, you think, oh, this is our savior, you know. Right. So anyway, he got elected. And from there, the country just started going down, unfortunately. So to make a long story short, the economy started crashing because he kept giving the money away to all these countries all over the world because we had so much money at that point. And I must say, he always supported the orchestra. And we were up, up, up with him. We always, our salaries went up and we got tremendous bonus. I mean, we would get Christmas bonus, like a six month salary, Christmas bonus and things like that. <laughs> he would just decree these things on TV too. Because you always got a big bonus in Venezuela of at least two months salary for Christmas. When I first went, there was two months. Then it came to three. He made it six. He gets on the TV and says, okay, everybody's getting a six months salary bonus for Christmas this year. Have a nice Christmas. We probably had a pretty nice Christmas after that. Right. But just pretend that you're a guy that has a small little store and you have like three um, employees. Mm. And now you have to come up with all that money. You have to pay them that too, because he made a decree. And that might be like a little bit more than you can do. Right. So what happens, you start getting businesses that are starting to crash because of all this craziness. See? Yeah, yeah. Then we get the oil crash. Remember the oil went down, down, down. It went like to 50%. It kept going down, down, down. I mean, it went to nothing. Mm -hmm. So this is a country that lives on the oil. And now oil is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Because can you imagine that the youth orchestra went on tour? We're talking about a 747 with just the instruments and all those kids and their chaperones. Whole plane, 747. Taking these kids to Europe and they did not stay in crummy hotels. Just we're talking four-star hotels in Europe. Wow. You're putting up and they don't, that orchestra isn't 50 people. This is 150, at least kids, plus the chaperones and all that stuff. You know, all the extra so like, baggage people. Like 250 people probably, at right? At least, I think more over 300. Wow. So you're moving all this to it. Now, what do you think that costs? I, uh, more money than I can imagine. Yes. You're talking Europe. You're talking, they went to China for a month. They went to Japan. They went to Australia. They went Europe, I don't know how many times. The States, that was much later. They came here, I think, only once. I think. So money, they're spending, spending, spending. And this is, they just spent all the money of the country, basically. So the the believer just went down, 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 down. And then they got into the idea of controlling the money, which meant if you made your salary, let's say you're making $40,000 a year, Ryan, but you can't take a dollar of it out of the country. So the money you make there is in Venezuelan currency and you can't change it to dollars unless the government lets you change it. You can't go anywhere. You can't buy a new instrument. You can't anything. Wow. So what happens? So... I'm just trying to make this story so everybody can understand it. You know what I mean? No, what I think this is very important. And why yeah. I'm here. Okay. So what it gets to now, you've got the people, these poor people that are always like, they had their salaries and they had, but a lot of business are going out. They're losing their jobs. So they're getting into burglary and crime. So what happens now? You've got a president that's telling the people to, well, if this, these people in this family have two cars, maybe you should just go and take one because you don't have one. The president is saying yeah, that. Yeah, that sort of thing, you know, and these people have, they have an apartment down on the beach, they have an apartment, in the, but maybe they've worked all their life, the wife and the husband, you know, and they have inherency from the family, whatever. And 
And so then you've got more and more poor people getting poorer by the day. And so that makes crime. Sure. Yeah. So here I am, and I'm sort of like in the middle of this as a, I am a Venezuelan citizen. Okay. I've been for many years and I feel very Venezuelan, but I'm having an American too. You know, this is kind of tricky. All right. So I'm retired from the orchestra. When, what year did you retire? I retired in 2006. So you played from 75 to 2006, yes. 30, was that 31 30 years? some years. Yeah. yeah. And there you retired at hundred percent salary. So I had no, I was still could have kept playing basically, but I thought, why should I, you know, yeah. I've, I've played all these symphonies. I'm tired of the nutcracker, you know, 28 years. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll take my hundred percent retirement and I'll just maybe teach, but maybe not because my idea was to put the flute in the closet and that I did that for six months. I said, this is it. I finished. I felt like I didn't go down. I finished like I, I'm playing at a certain level still and I'm putting the flute in the closet and now I'm going to enjoy life. And I did. So uh, I stayed on as the orchestra librarian in the morning because that's an orchestra that was from 8 to 11. Um, I had been for 25 years the orchestra librarian as well. But I had an assistant. Okay. Also, and we don't do the amount of craziness that we do here. You know, as concerts, we have concerts, but most of our things are photocopies and fast. We don't do all. We didn't do rentals and all that stuff. So it was a much easier job that I could do in the morning, basically yeah. taking my music out and we played what we had. Basically. And then you said when they were rehearsing, you could yeah, just I do don't your... put music on the stand. I never did that. I never put it on. Took it off. Or that was we have setup boys that do that. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, I don't go the concerts at night. Why would I? You know, yeah. here I do. <laughs> sure, yeah. Here I'm just like an orchestra member and a staff as well. Right, okay. yeah. All right. But anyway, getting back to Venezuela. So I'm retired and I'm starting to enjoy life. So I thought, boy, I'm going to get my body in shape. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to work in the morning. I get off at 11. I come home and have a nice lunch, a little rest. And then I'm going to the gym every day. So I had a lot of friends in the gym. And we did all the classes for two hours every day, Monday through Friday. And I'd go down to the beach and stuff. But then it was just getting so, just to walk to my gym, which was, Basically, a 10-minute walk was getting really dangerous. I'm looking behind my shoulder because people are robbing people all the time. And so um, I had a very, very, I had two very, very bad experiences with, I thank God that I'm still alive. And it's almost a miracle because of one of them, where we went, I had a brand new car um, about two weeks and we went down to the beach area and unfortunately we were carjacked by four guys. I think they were policemen or ex-policemen. And like, just so everybody understands, from what I understand, that's an incredibly common occurrence at this point. Yes, it is. Um, it's a common occurrence, but when it happens to you, it's not so common. Well, but you know, I think Kathleen was saying that uh, Yolanda is Carlos's, well, our conductors, our music director, right, it's his wife. Huh? And she was saying, it was almost a joke among her friends that she wasn't carjacked until she was like 21, you know, like, oh, you haven't been carjacked until you were 21, as if it's like, I'm really? more surprised it hasn't happened sooner. It was kind of that common That's of an exactly occurrence. That's exactly correct. I, I think now, well, well, we had not too long ago, you know, there's a lot of Venezuelans, I didn't know this, but there's a lot of Venezuelans here in Birmingham, Alabama. I didn't know that either. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I didn't know it. I knew it through Carlos's mother, who she gets into all this, you know, social media. I don't have time for that yeah. <laughs> in the library, but she got into it and she says, no, a lot and they're going to have a meeting um out at oak um oak mountain mm -hmm. it was like a picnic oh yeah that was uh i went with her that was when was that it was like it was just uh, september 
Oh, yeah, and I went with yeah. her and Carl. I said, Carlos, you got to come too, you know? And there were like 100, 150 of Venezuelans. Wow. I met one that was, was a doctor. I said, you know, I know your face. I'm sure. He says, probably because I've been to a lot of concerts. And I said, what did you do? I said, I'm a doctor. I said, oh, I said, what do you do here? He says, I'm a car mechanic. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't obviously, right. if you're a doctor in one country, you come to another, you can't be practiced as a doctor. Right. At least uh, unless you went through the whole yeah. process. And these doing... are people like me that thought I we would never leave the country. You know, I I thought I made a, I made a really good living there. And I bought with my partner of really nice penthouse we were really lucky when we got it it was a brand new build we weren't looking for a penthouse but just found it and um it was brand new and it has three floors and has incredible view i have a view in every window mm -hmm. of the mountain area i mean it's really gorgeous and it's like my dream home and we made it exactly the way we wanted we had I mean, we got it. It had a hole in the roof we had a build because there you would buy a penthouse and it was unfinished because you finish it the way you want to finish it. Oh, okay. So we did that. It took us about a year. But we lived in it while it was built because we didn't have enough money to live in another place. Yeah. So, but this is like my dream home and I had to leave it. Now, I, when I first, um, I came up to the States, I'll tell you why, because. Do you want to tell that, the story of your car in oh, yeah. Palm Beach? Oh, yeah. I got off. Sorry, I cut you, I I cut you off. I just wanted it to be You know, understood. when you get old, you forget you. That's all right. That's, that's <laughs> why I'm here. I get off track. Yeah, that's okay. why I'm here. So to we're going me. to the beach. This was right before Christmas. We had just, we had just had, I think it was the orchestra Christmas party. And, and they always invite the retired people too. And we went. And um, I said to my, you know, it was a funny thing. I said to my friend, I really don't want to go today. I don't know why. I just don't feel like it. He said, yeah, but you know, this is, this, it was my second flute who had a membership down at this nice new club down at the beach area which is about 35 minutes driving right down the mountain from Caracas. Okay. So I said, okay, 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 we'll go. Well, we won't stay too long. Okay. So I don't know. I just didn't have a good feeling, you know? I don't know if, but I did. So we're driving along the coastal road and there the road is very narrow because the mountains go straight down into the sea at most of the parts. And there are certain parts where it like extends out into beach area, but then it's mountain again. So you can't drive too fast. And I'm a fast driver. I like to drive fast. So I'm driving along. You know, it's a nice, I think it was a Sunday or a Saturday or Sunday. One or the other. So we're driving down. There was like no cars practically. I think it was 10 o'clock in the morning. So this car passes me. I remember it was a Fiat, a white Fiat. It pays crazy, passes me like crazy. I said, man, they're nuts. They're probably drunk already. So anyway, crashes on his brakes in front of me. So I braked as hard as I could and just came up to his bumper. I was almost here. I thought, man, this is crazy. And that four of them jumped out of their car with their guns in their hands. With these Glocks, I think they're called the guns. Each, you know, the back seat and the front seat. Then I notice there's another car that pulls up right up to my back. So I thought this is a carjacking. So um, we have our windows locked. And I said, Leo, give them whatever they want. You know, we don't want to be dead. Just they could take the car, whatever. We don't, we didn't have much money. We're going to the beach. We weren't, we weren't playing on spending really because we were going to go into this club. Okay, so they bang on the door, you know, with the ham, the, what do you call that? The part of the- Yeah, the handle of the, the pistol. The handle of the pistol. Bam, 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 bam. Oh, God. Okay, so I opened the locks. Well, they yanked us out of the car like they were going to kill us, you know? I mean, they couldn't just say, just get out of the car. They yanked us out of the floor, you know, and kicks my friend. And I said, wait a minute. Here's the keys. Take the car. What do you want? Here's everything. Give us your wallets. I gave him the wallet. 
the one thing that I didn't, I, the, the car was one thing, I had insurance, but I didn't want to lose all my papers, like driver's license, because to get all that is such a thing. It's an ordeal. Like I'd rather process, give them like $1,000 yeah. than have to get those, all my, you know, papers back. Oh, so they, they took our wallets. Okay. So I, I said, okay, take the car, you know? No, no, no. Get in the car in the back. The two of you sit on this side in the back. So I was sitting in the back door on behind the driver. My friend was sitting next to me. One of the criminals was sitting next to him. Two criminals in the front and another one in the back in another car. So they start driving. So I'm thinking, why? I wonder why they want to take us. I'm just thinking to myself. And they said, don't look at us. Our faces, we're holding our heads down. And he says, what kind of work do you do? So my friend says, uh, we work at the hospital. Because he does. He's a radiologist. He didn't say anything that I worked at the orchestra yet. Because he's smarter than me. He's thinking I'm going to tell him he works for the U.S. Embassy. You know, Okay. So, which he does later, but I'm already at the... So, I'm looking at my friend. This is a brand new car. And you had to push down a button. So it didn't lock when the car just took off. It was like a button. Uh, yeah, right. Push. They didn't do it. I knew it, the car that even you couldn't see it, that this, this was open in the back. Because I didn't have those things, the kid lock thing on it. So I see we're going, we're not going too fast. And there's a part like there's a little detour thing because they're doing work on the road. They're sort of like driving us further down the road, which it goes into the wilderness after the beach area. And I think that's where they're going to take us. I don't know what the idea was to take us there, but anyway, to find out if our families had money or something to see if they could get money. But I'm already old, so they're not getting money much out of my family. They're all dead. Anyway... So I see an opportunity. I'm looking at my friend like, and he goes like that to me and I open the door and jump out and I'm rolling because the car is going. So he speeds up right away. So I hit, it was sort of like a, now remind you, we're in our bathing suits to go to the beach. So I hit this like puddle. So I'm all tumbled and everything. And I'm just full of like mud because it had been raining early in the morning and a mess and they race off. So then I'm thinking to myself, because, you know, you do things, you don't know what you do sometimes. Because going through my mind here, maybe they're going to take us up to the woods and they're going to find out that we don't have any money and they're just going to kill us so we can't identify them. And that's how things work there. Yeah. You know, I know lots of friends that have already gone through this and some of them made it and some didn't. And so we're getting, I'm like really nervous. So I just, I don't know how I ever thought I would jump out of a moving car, but I did. I never thought I had that in me, but I, yeah. I swear to God. So I was there and I'm a mess. So I'm yelling to these guys that are working there. Can you help me? We need to call the police, you know? And they looked at me sort of like laughing because call the police there. Well, so what? They might show up in two hours, you know, yeah. if they come. Sure. Know? Wow. So I thought, oh, they took my friend. So I didn't know what to do. And here I am. I'm like covered head to toe in mud. I must, I'm sure that any car that passes looking at me, they're not going to stop because they think I'm a crazy person, sure, yeah. homeless or like trying to rob them or whatever. So no one's stopping. So I'm like going with my hands, you know, I didn't know what to do. So the car went on. I don't know what happened because I'm right in this area, right? Okay. So it turns out that Leo's telling them, you better leave us here. I mean, you better get out now because he works for the U.S. Embassy and this is going to be like a real problem for you guys. So they were so dumb, they didn't even look into my wallet because I would I didn't have any identification that I worked for the embassy. You know? Yeah. Okay, but anyway, they didn't. So they're pissed. So what do they do? They get out of the car 
They threw the keys. He didn't see when they threw it because when they get out of the car, the guy sitting in the back, well, I, this is it for you and shot him in the leg right in the car. And I don't know this yet. So I don't know how much time has passed. So um, a truck comes and I'm holding my hands up. And I said, I need help. I need help. You know, and of course, this is all in Spanish. And the driver stops. He said, are you with the guy that's bleeding up on the, there's a car parked and there's a guy bleeding. I thought, oh my God. So I just took off running because I didn't have a cell phone. I mean, I didn't, to tell you the truth, I didn't know any numbers of my friends to call either because they took all our cell phones. So this is like a desperate moment that, and I'm one of those persons that I really like to be in control all the time. And I was completely with no control because I had no way of communicating because I didn't know anybody's number. No one probably was going to help me. I had no money, no identification, nothing. And here is supposedly my friend is bleeding. I th I'm thinking the worst, you know? So I run, I'm running up the road and running, 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 running. And I see the car and I see him laying out, you know, like on the side of the road like this, bleeding. Man. So I know how Venezuelans work. So the first thing in our mind, we got to get him to a hospital quick. Okay. Now we're down at the beach. Mind you that in South America, the hospitals may big hospitals and things where they're really going to save you is going to be in the capital, not in these dinky little towns. Because while they take you to a, you know, to a little, um, what do you call it, first aid stuff, you could be dead. You better just take your chances and get to a main hospital to make it, you know. So anyway, I get a truck to stop. And finally, I tell the guy, listen, I have money. And when I get up to Caracas, I'll pay you whatever, but I need you to take him physically to the, to, to a place, you know, up the road and where we can call and get him an ambulance to the thing. Well, we both get in the car and, and then I'm thinking, no, where are you going to take him? So he told me there's a place a mile up the road. Okay. Cause I'm thinking, and Leo didn't know that they had thrown the keys, but I'm thinking they're probably not going to take the keys because that's evidence against them. So I'm looking, I'm looking, look, I find the keys. They threw it like in the beach area. It took me a while, but I found it. So I get in the car and race off like a crazy person and get to the place. And um, there's no, there's no Amazon. I said, get in the car and we're going. I got him in the back of the car and I took him to the hospital. But it took us about an hour to get there. So I just keep up. So I didn't know what to do. But I have a student who works at the hospital. She's a doctor, an ex-student. And we took, her to, took him to that hospital. And as soon as I got in, I said, please call um, Dr. Maritza and um, tell her that uh, Professor Glenn is here and we need it. We've got an emergency and, she's, we, she's, and she helped us. And they saved him. Gosh. And I was kind of cut up and messed up, but who cares, you know? But anyway, so that's our first experience. That's the first one. That's the first one. And that was, that was the easy one. So after we had our second, which I won't go all into, but we had a second experience, which was much worse. We, I got home very late from a flight and it was midnight and we're getting to our building and the, the, great, the gate was closed. And as soon as we got, we're waiting for the gate to open and the, these same thing again, banging on the windows. And we were just so startled because we were talking, we we're listening to music that we just froze for a minute. And at that minute, our guard and our building put on the alarm and the people are shouting out the building. And the guys were so pissed that they couldn't rob us that they took out their pistols and just start shooting. So I said, Leo, give it all, gun it down into, because you go down like to into our basement where the car parking area, just gun it down there. And he did. And they took off running. 
But I didn't realize that of all the shots, I mean, all the windows were broken. And I had been shot in the arm. I didn't even feel it, to tell you the truth. I did not feel it. But I see this blood gushing out of my friend, out of his chest. I thought, oh my God, it must be in the heart. Same person? Same person who got in the leg. He said, I said, you're a, you're a magnet for these things. Yeah. Well, I said, why couldn't it be me? Well, I got to stop hanging I'm out with older. you. <laughs> Leo said, yeah, maybe you're not a good influence on me. <laughs> but anyway, so um, then I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's time to get out of the country. But, you know, when you have your life, you have your yeah, dream Yeah, how do you just home. leave it? My yeah. friends, I mean, I don't have much family left. I have some nieces and nephews in Florida, but no immediate family, sort of siblings and things. So, um, okay, I get over that. And now we're getting real paranoid because we can't go out at night anymore at all. At all. I mean, six o'clock at night, you got to be in. And six o'clock is usually when it gets dark in Caracas. And you just couldn't walk out. Now you can't at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, I mean. You could be attacked too at 10 o'clock in the morning. You don't take those chances anymore. No one goes to the beach anymore. No one goes to the mountain place. I mean, there's no recreation because you're too afraid. Yeah. Going where you used to go, you you could find... Incredible. So nobody enjoys this like beautiful landscape I know. Anymore. I mean, we have incredible, breathtaking beaches and scenery in Venezuela. It's a very beautiful country, but you can't enjoy it anymore because you'd have to have bodyguards and, and those kind of cars that are blindado. Um what do you call that blindado? You know, in the windows, you can't... Tinted and stuff? Yeah, well, not tinted, but against um, bullets. Bulletproof. Oh, bulletproof glass. Bulletproof, yeah, a couple blindado in Spanish. But anyway, <laughs> so, okay. So we're also getting to the point of the money where I couldn't buy... I could have lots of our money, but I couldn't buy a ticket out of the country because I, there was no way I could buy it because they wouldn't change our money because the government would only give to certain people uh, like a, a permission to change at the government bank that so much money into dollars. So it got where regular people like us, we couldn't change our money. So, so I could have you... lots of our money, but I couldn't change it. How did you get out then? So MOLA, which is the major, major orchestra librarian association. That's a tricky one. MOLA. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think you nailed it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So anyway, I'm a member of them and um, they were having their big conference in Finland. And I thought, gee, that might be kind of nice, you know, but how would I ever do it? So I wrote them a letter and they said they help members that can't. And they were very interested in having more South American and not just the Americans and the Europeans that went to it. So they said, we will be able to pay for um, some money for you so they could pay all like my hotels and stuff. It was enough to pay the hotels. And so I talked to the orchestra and I said, how about if we go to Air France and say that could they sponsor B-Baby? Because um, they go from Caracas to Paris. And um, and give me like a special fare that I could pay in Bolivares. And we went and talked to the boss and our president of the orchestra. And they did. They gave me a ticket. I had to pay a little bit, but it wasn't that much. And it was in our money. So I could do it in Bolivares. So it's okay. And I have a student who lives in Paris. So I could stay a couple of days in Paris and stuff. And I have some friends in in, in Spain so and then so then I got to there and I thought you know I was talking to all my MOLA people there colleagues and stuff and they said oh, you gotta get out of there Glenn you gotta get out of there so, so anyway there was a summer job at the Miami um, music festival so I talked to the guy there and um, he said yeah we'd love to have you know experienced librarian because we really need someone it was a lot of work it was sort of like here but I said listen I can't buy a ticket no we'll pay your ticket and you know pay you and everything so I, that's how I got out 
Yeah. But that was just going to be for the summer. It was going to be June to August. And I thought, well, while I'm in Florida, I'll go, you know, up to Daytona and have a little summer vacation and stuff. So it just turns out I happen to be looking at the Mola page and I see um, this opening here for Orchestra Librarian. Yeah. Yeah. It was advertised on our Mola page. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, damn, I know Carl, uh, the conductor, Carlos, because I, I had never been to Alabama before, you know, but I remember his father was, Carlos is now in Alabama, Alabama Symphony. I said, and I look it up in the internet and I see Carlos Iskerizen. I know him since he's a kid, you know, I know and they know me and everything. So I sent in my resume, um, it was Kurt, Yep. was the president. The former CEO, yeah. Yeah, former CEO. And uh, he called me the same day I sent it in. And he said, we'd like to set up some interviews with you because Carlos knows you and he knows that you're good work and we really need somebody fast and we know that you have experience and you can do this job, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So I had, Carlos called me. I talked to him in Miami for a while. I was just doing this sort of like as just to feel things out. You know, I had no plans to move to the States at all, at all. I was thinking, you know, it's really getting bad in the country, but I have my life there. Okay. So, and mind you that this festival in Miami, we worked in shorts. I brought up shorts, bathing suit, and I brought one coat and tie because we hit for the concerts. Yeah. That was it. I had no dress clothes. I didn't even bring one pair of long pants because they said, oh, you, everybody works here in shorts. The only time you need is a suit, one suit just for the concerts. I said, okay, that's all I brought. <laughs> <laughs> so Kurt uh, says after he said, well, Chris, everybody liked you and we were hiring you. We need you now. This sound, I said, oh, God, this is 75 repeating itself. Remember when the guy from right, the yeah. said, we need you now. <laughs> it's said, right oh. now. I said, are you kidding me? C can I start like in October? He said, no. He said, because we don't have any of the music prepared for our first concert, which is in September. We need you like very soon. And that would be the condition in hiring that you come now. Boy. And I said, uh, can I get back to you? <laughs> And I called Caracas and I said to my friend, I said, what do you think? He says, no, absolutely not. And I said, well, I don't know. I, you know, this is an opportunity. It may not come up again. Let me try it for a year, you know. How bad could it be? So uh, I said, I called Kurt up and I said, um, okay, I'll do it. But you guys are going to have to put me up for a month or something because, I mean, I'm in limbo here, you know. I have no... No, I'm all my life's there. Yeah, yeah, we'll put you up for a month and uh, you'll see how everything goes and we'll see how you do and all that. I said, okay. So I said, listen, I'm going to have to go back to Venezuela at some point because uh, I'll need clothes and stuff. So then I thought, well, maybe it was just easier to have my friend bring up, I, you know, called him. He took pictures of all the clothes. Yeah, this, yes, this, no, and he came up. And then I was here. And, that's and the rest is said. history, yeah. Yeah, and here I am. That is so. Uh, not what I would have thought. You know, when you first showed up to the job, I was like, oh, it's the new librarian. Yeah, you know, yeah. I just wouldn't have a thought any of what you just talked about. More flutist than librarian, but now <clears throat> I'm more librarian than flutist. <laughs> well, sure, but just that, you know, that's been your, uh, that's been your history. And yeah. I know you've talked about it gives you like a, a pretty, I don't want to say unique perspective, because I feel like other people have a similar perspective, but a perspective of it could be worse. But for you, exactly. you've lived worse, significantly yeah, worse. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, and when I first got here, you know, right, I'm, I'm like out at night and I'm looking behind my shoulder. And sometimes people would say, why are you looking behind your shoulder? So 
I don't know. Old the bad habits. people. You know, they're going to get yeah, me. Yeah, old habits die hard. And it yeah. took a long time. And now I'm just, I said, the greatest thing about living here is that I can go out at night. I can walk and I don't feel, I'm not afraid. Yeah. Things can happen to you. But it's not like you know something's going to happen. Just when is it going to be? You know right. what I mean? And it's, it's, uh, it's like not even something I think about though. Right. Cause it's not right. been a reality right. for me, but, but all those Venezuelans and those people that left their lives, I mean, like the doctor and it was just, I was, I think about two weeks ago, I was running in the little park over here, you know, behind UAB, the George Ward park. Yeah. You know, it's like the, where the kids play the Frisbee. It's a yeah, Frisbee yeah. park. I think that George Ward was a Frisbee champion or something. I didn't know that. Baron was telling me about that story. I, he that. would know. He would he know. He knows yeah. all that, you know, all the. <laughs> The trivia. Yeah, yeah. But I was walking in there and I had happened to have my Venezuelan t-shirt on. And this guy said, are you from Venezuela? I said, yeah. And we were talking in Spanish and I said, uh, what do you do? He said, oh, I had um, a hardware store in Maracay. Maracay is this, about the fourth biggest city in Venezuela. It's about an hour and a half from Caracas. And he said, what are you doing here? He said, oh, luckily I had a son here. You know, he said, it got so bad I take medication and I couldn't get it. My, my, I said, I had the same problem with my blood pressure medicine. I didn't take it for a year because I couldn't get it. Because, you know, you couldn't send medicine. I couldn't, like, order it online. I said, because my niece said, well, don't worry, we'll pay for it. And later we'll figure out how you pay us. But I said, you can't because you can't send medicine internationally. You know, it's illegal. So we couldn't get it. So I said, well, I just won't take it. I'll, <laughs> I'll have less salt and stuff. But some people, it doesn't work that way. If you're a diabetic or something, you don't take it, you can kick the bucket. Yeah. But you couldn't even get medicine, which is so ridiculous. Yeah, that's insane. So that was another reason too. So so anyway, here I am. So that's the past now, sort of. Someday I'll figure out what I do with my apartment and my car and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, it's, it's, an, it's incredible too that you just like have all that stuff still. And yeah, I just can't imagine doing that. You know, I, I have a, what I believe is a really nice house. Kathleen and yeah, I were very fabulous. fortunate in getting this house. And, you know, we have our family and we have kind of exactly what you said, sort of like a, a dream situation right. going on here. And it's it's very hard, I think, for me. And I would imagine anyone listening just to think what would it be like to just be forced to have to make that decision of it's better to leave this and yeah. go to an unknown situation. Because I think even the part about, well, the medicine part, that that can affect you as you get older, you know, more things you can't get. Cause, but even the food, I could cut down the food. I don't think I could. That's a big thing with me. I mean, you know, I'm used to eating well, but if I can, I can't. Yeah. But the thing about being locked up in your apartment and that fear that you have to go out at some points, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really hard and just not knowing if today is going to be the day you know just for an instance uh my friend sort of screwed up using my internet at, at home uh, my banking in venezuela and it they froze all my accounts there so i'm gonna have to at some point go there to get out of this problem so that he can you they can use my i mean to pay my you know stuff that i need to pay there in, in venezuela money and it's just ridiculous, but I have to go there. And I'm just thinking, I don't want to. Yeah, I'm too afraid now to go there. You yeah. know what I mean? Just just to get to the, from the airport to my house would be like a, a nightmare for me. You know, so I'm thinking, just forget it. You know, that's, for now. Yeah, I, that's yeah, it's very so, hard for me to fathom. So past that. the page, yeah. and now I'm on this in our wonderful ASO orchestra. Well, know? and as I said before, for me. Just, uh, I mean, it, it makes more sense now hearing your story and kind of what you've been through, but just 
the fact that you seem to always have a smile on your face, you know, like regardless of what may be going on or what you may be thinking or how you may be feeling, it seems like when you're at work, you're making the best of the situation. And you're all, for me, you're always a pleasure to be around. I always Thank have a great conversation okay. with you, I feel. And but don't you think that's a musician's job? I mean, we're performers. Yeah. So you might have the worst headache. You might have the bad, the worst thing that happened to you. You're in a really bad mood. But when you go out there and play your solo, you have to pass the switch. Exactly right. We yeah. got to do it. You know what I mean? And I think it's, I've heard stories, and one in particular would be my high school band director said he had to play a concert the night that is he found out his dad passed away. Boy, yeah. And you know what? I can't imagine that would be, not what you're feeling there, but then to have to almost set that aside so you can give the music you know, your focus and your undivided attention, which is what it deserves. And yeah, I mean, we're, we could be going through any number of things on stage from physical ailments to like mental stress or, you know, and we just kind of have to power through and it's kind of an unknown, unseen aspect, I think of what we do. And I think we do that every day. Don't you think? I mean, all classical musicians go through I think they, yeah, I think think it's a necessity to be able to compartmentalize like that. It's almost like acting, you turn the camera off because today I just can't do it. My headache's too bad, but we can't say turn the concert off because, well, what about all the other people that are playing? So you got to do it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So... I think that's well, and then the flexibility, we the flex, you know, to for that, like this past or what is it, two weeks ago now when I had food poisoning? Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah well, I, I mean, I'd made, you, you know, there's only one principal trumpet. And, I, and so, like, I felt I really got to be there. I got to make this happen. And I, you know, to the extent that I made myself throw up, you know, uh, to try to feel try better. To feel and better. then I got to the concert and I just knew I wasn't going to be able to do exactly what you said. I wasn't going to be able to play the music at the level that the Alabama symphony plays at. And so I actually left the concert, but to have, you know, a section full of amazing people that could just, just a part that they haven't rehearsed, a part that they haven't played to be able to step into that and do really well. Just, you know, I I think that would happen all across our orchestra. You know, it's a testament to the quality of what we have. It does every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, some people, you know, get a headache and they don't come, but if you're in a principal position, you just can't do that. You kind of got to, yeah. So it's, unless you're really, you can't, you just can't. If you're throwing up or you're coughing or, I mean, something you just can't play. Yeah. You know, that's a whole different. So it's, it's just, you know, it's inspiring you to me. Maybe you're not telling this story to be inspiring, but it is inspiring to me to know that everything you've gone through and everything you're still dealing with, and it's, you still, you know, you're still a person that is like, there's good things about life. And, oh, there I, is, you know, absolutely. yeah. And so that you know, perspective is important, I think. It's, it's an adventure, too. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm old. I was already retired. So now I'm going to do new sort of thing, you know? Yeah. It's not exactly what I would like to do, but I do it. And uh, sometimes some. Now I'm very happy I have an assistant and we get along really great and we laugh and stuff. So I think it's, we're more <laughs> cheerful at the library. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but we're busy bees there, I'll tell you. Yeah. We're busy bees. It's a very busy little orchestra. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't know why when I first took this job, I just thought, oh, Alabama Symphony, how hard could this be? This yeah, I be, think that's... This will be like Venezuela, you yeah. know? Yeah. No, concert I... a week, maybe. And then when Chris sent me the first um, Pops thing, and I'm looking at this list of music. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. How am I going to get all this stuff? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I think, I think a lot of people, yeah, I hadn't even heard of the Alabama Symphony before I auditioned for it. I just, it's kind of similarly, I was, I didn't have a job and that was an opening and I was, you know, the salary looked good and I was like, 
huh? I've never heard of this group, yeah, but I had heard, I had had friend a friend at least who had played with the group, and he said, oh, you, you know, had? yeah, he's a bass trombone player because we don't have a bass trombone, so he had, right. he's good oh, friends with Jay, yeah, oh, Jay. our principal trombone, uh-huh. and he said, you know, that group is awesome. Birmingham's a great town, like. You know, you may not know about it, but it's definitely worth. And and now after being here for five years, uh, I would agree. It's it's the orchestra sounds f- fantastic all the time. You know, we take everything seriously. All right. the concert, no, you know, a kids show is the same to us as a masterwork show, and we really some work of the hard. Concerts have been very, very yeah, we work really hard. So and lately, we've had a nice turnout. Yeah, which is very nice. I like that. I like. So that. I think we need to get more. You know, more people. I at our think concerts. it'll hopefully get better as time. You know. We got to get our our, our uh, posters up, you know, even at grocery stores. We got to get it everywhere. Yeah. Saturate the people with it. Because we've got such a good product. Sure, I agree. Uh, I agree. I mean, what cities in the States, small cities like Birmingham, well, it's not that small, but it's small, has this quality of orchestra? I don't know. I mean, come on. Not many. Yeah. This is a, this is a luxury, as we say, a lujo. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great word for it, yeah. This is lujo. It's lux- luxury. Well, yeah. I think if you're okay with that, that's as good a place as any to wrap up the interview. All right, and the no, talk. This was really I, I really, hope I really didn't wander on too much. No, it was wonderful. Just... I really appreciate you taking the time to to come over and uh, have a glass of wine and chat with me for a little bit. I was having this yeah. delicious Pinot Noir. Uh, so, <laughs> um, if anybody needs to find me, they can do so on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just follow at That's Not Spit. Uh, I'd also like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. And uh, I think that's all for this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Mm-hmm.